if you will find Esther chapter 3 as we continue our journey, our series titled God's Providential Hand, or the, um, I'm actually calling it the Unseen Hand of God. And the subject matter tonight is when evil has a name and a face. When evil has a name and a face. Esther chapter 3. Got it? Okay. It says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, to the plunder of their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. 
The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the capital, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now, folks, this chapter records for us events that have sadly been all too common in the lives of the Jewish people. I think back, for instance, to the book of Exodus. You remember what happened in Exodus chapter 1? Remember that key phrase in Exodus chapter 1 that a new pharaoh came to the throne? And what was said about that pharaoh? Does anybody remember? He did not know Joseph. And of course, remember what he said to his people? These Jews are becoming too numerous. And before we know it, they're going to rise up and they're going to depart. And they're going to attack us and then depart. And we've got to do something. And so, of course, he came up with that plan to annihilate all the baby boys. And, of course, we know what happened. God spared Moses. And then in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, remember what Herod determined to do when he couldn't kill Jesus, when he found out the wise men had tricked him? What order did he give? Again, that all the baby boys would be killed. Then, of course... I think of Hitler and how he put to death six million Jews during World War II. Today, uh, until fairly recently, I don't know if it's still on their website or not, but the Palestinians, uh, the the old PLO, you remember them on their website, they, they had a map of the Middle East whereby they were envisioning a Middle East without Israel. That's their vision for the Middle East. A a, a Middle East without Israel even existing. And so from time to time down to the very present day, there have been leaders around the world, wicked people, who have determined the annihilation of the Jewish people. Now, nowhere do we see this desire any more so than in Exodus, uh, Esther chapter 3. We're introduced in Esther chapter 3 to a man by the name of Haman. Now, Haman wanted to go further than perhaps anyone ever because he wants to annihilate all the Jewish people wherever they are found. So again, he's just one in a long line of those engaged in this anti-Semitism. Now, if you need to know why the Jew has been so hated, I think the primary reason is, obviously... That Satan is behind it. And let me show you why. If you'll turn with me over to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. And begin reading with me in verse 1. Romans 9 beginning in verse 1. Notice what Paul says there. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed 
and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so from the Jews, as Paul points out here, we have the covenants, we have the law, and According to his human lineage, we have the Messiah. In other words, folks, in God's redemptive history, the Jews have played a pivotal role. And so Satan has wanted to stamp out those who, from the human standpoint of view, have brought about the purposes of God. This is a spiritual warfare that we're seeing here in Esther chapter 3. Now, in chapter 3 here, Haman is Satan's vehicle to launch his most vicious attack yet. Again, it's nothing short of the genocide of an entire people that Haman desires. If Haman succeeds here... The very arrival of the Messiah centuries later in Bethlehem would be in jeopardy because, again, Haman wants to uh, destroy the Jews everywhere. And so there's a lot at stake here that's being recorded in the book of Esther. Don't think for a moment that the book of Esther doesn't apply to you. It applies directly to you. Because again, had Haman succeeded, the very people that the Messiah came from according to the flesh would have been wiped out. You don't get much more application to us than that, do you? Well, in chapter 3, we see the extent that hatred is willing to go. The first thing I want you to notice with me tonight, if you're taking notes, is the fact that the past can have ways of revisiting us. The past can have ways of revisiting us, either for the good or the bad. You know, it's like what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatsoever whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. We reap consequences, don't we? And folks, what we are seeing here is consequences of somebody else's disobedience. Does anybody, I was going to say, does anybody have a clue what I'm talking about? And Ned just guessed it. You what? But Saul. Exactly. Saul was to kill all of the Amalekites. Haman is a, a, an Agagite. He's from the Amalekites. Meaning, had Saul obeyed God back in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and annihilated the Amalekites, then the Jews wouldn't be faced with Haman in the book of Esther. Because Haman wouldn't have been. 
It's because Saul disobeyed God and the Amalekites are still around that Haman has been born. And so the past can have ways of revisiting us. Folks, our obedience can be a blessing to our descendants and likewise our disobedience can be a curse to our descendants. If you're willing to accept that today, I think a lot of what we're facing in America in 2018 is the seeds that were sown back in the 50s and 60s. When America made some of the decisions back then, and we're seeing the fruit of it today, right? Now, we're beginning to see why God has moved Esther into the position that she's in. God always has his people in place when he needs them. And I don't know about you, but I take great comfort in that. Saul may have failed in the past leading to this, but that does not mean that God's hands are tied. Isaiah 55 says, God's ways are higher than our ways. Well, secondly, what I want you to see with me tonight is the refusal to bow. The refusal to bow, back in verses 1 to 3. In a strange turn of events, as the chapter opens, we see that Haman is made what would essentially be the position of the prime minister. Now, we're not told what leads to this. Now, it's a, it's a bit surprising to us that Haman has been promoted to this position because as chapter 2 closed, remember what Mordecai did? Mordecai is the man who warned the king. She told Esther, who told her husband, he investigated the matter, and there were those two servants, those two eunuchs, who were planning to kill, to have an uprising, a coup against the king and kill him. And so Mordecai is the one who discovered the plot against the king and yet it's Haman that gets the promotion. You would think Mordecai would have gotten the promotion. But Haman's gotten the promotion. You know, sometimes God's servants don't get the recognition they deserve when we think they should get it. Now, they'll get it eventually. There's a payday someday, right? For good and for bad. There's a payday someday for those who have been faithful. In time, Mordecai will be rewarded. He'll be recognized. But at least at this point, he's being strangely passed over. Well, we see the stage being set for conflict. Mordecai would not bow. Here's Haman, and, and everybody's bowing before Haman. Mordecai won't. Now, I would assume if all that was being expected of everybody at this point was simple respect, then Mordecai would have bowed out of simple respect. 
But we need to understand what's going on here is Haman is expecting more than respect. Pagan kings and pagan officials, by having their subjects bow to them, were actually demanding worship, that their subjects would pay homage to them. That's what Haman's expecting. And that's why Mordecai refuses to bow. Some have also suggested that on the Persian clothing, the official attire that Haman had on, that that there would have been some type of pagan emblem of one of the Persians' false gods. And so again, with the people bowing to Haman, they would have also been paying homage to Persia's false gods. And again, Mordecai refuses to do this, rightly so. Now by the way, folks, that's also what got the early church in trouble with the Roman Empire too, isn't it? Because remember what the Romans were asking everybody to do? The Romans in the first century were asking people to go into to temples and to burn incense to Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And the early Christians, fortunately, wouldn't do that. Now, the early Christians, Paul wrote, also Peter wrote, that they were to respect the governing authorities, and they did respect the governing authorities, but they would not worship the governing authorities. And because of that, the early Christians got in trouble too. Do you know that the early Christians were even accused of being atheist? They were accused of being atheist because they wouldn't worship Rome's gods. And so the Romans called them atheists. But again, same, same type thing. Same type thing the church went through. And Mordecai is experiencing that. He's being asked to pay homage uh, to Haman and to worship the Persian gods, and he won't do it. Well, what happens? Gets him in trouble, doesn't it? But aren't you glad he took that stand? Folks, there are times that the people of God have to take a courageous stand. Amen? Aren't you glad the Protestant reformers took a stand? Men like Martin Luther, for instance. Because here, John Tetzel and others were doing things like the sale of indulgences. And John Tetzel was going around the countryside selling indulgences because they were raising money to build St. Peter's in Rome. And he came up with a little jingle, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. The, the, the Roman Catholic Church was saying, don't, don't you want to buy your loved ones out of purgatory? You don't want them to... Of course, we know there's no such thing as a biblical doctrine of purgatory. But the church was saying there's purgatory and, and uh, your, your poor loved ones, they're suffering in purgatory. 
And don't you want to don't you want to buy them out so they don't have to spend as many years in purgatory and they can go on quicker to heaven? And so throw your money in the coffer. And uh, as soon as that coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And, of course, that led to Martin Luther nailing that 95 Thesis on the, the door of the church at Wittenberg. And, and uh, he, he called for protest, and he debated with the Roman authorities. And, and he said, here I am. I can, I can do no other. I take my stand. If you can convince me from the pages of Holy Scripture, I will recant and I will tell you what you want to know, but unless you can convince me from God's holy word, here I stand, I can do no other. And he took a stand. I guess the question for us today is, is the modern day church really willing to take a stand against anything? Sometimes to our shame, we don't, do we? We don't stand up when we should. Well, again, here's Mordecai. Hello? Answer the phone. Folks, every battlefield is not worth dying on. Some battlefields are worth dying on. And Mordecai chooses his battle wisely. And he will not pay homage to Haman. And he will not worship and recognize the Persian gods. We need men and women of conviction like this today. We really do. The third thing I want you to see, the irrational behavior of unrighteous anger. The irrational behavior of unrighteous anger in verses 4 to 11. Haman is absolutely furious. Now, if Haman in his little mind would have thought that Mordecai was simply insulting him, he should have overlooked the insult. You know, the book of Proverbs says that it's to a man's credit to overlook an insult. Some people can't do that. But again, Mordecai wasn't simply insulting Haman. He was taking a stand based on his faith. But Haman views it as a personal attack. That's what little people do. They take everything personally. If they don't get their way, they get angry. And that's what Haman is doing. Here is a... Big man in title and position, but he's a little tiny man of character. But we see Haman unleashing his irrational behavior and his unrighteous anger. He's not only going to try to destroy Mordecai, he's going after Mordecai's people. He wants to silence them all. 
Haman's plan is he's going to get at all of the Jews. And so he has his magicians casting lots to see when the Jews are to be destroyed and the lot falls to the twelfth month. In other words, there's going to be plenty of time for Haman's wickedness to come to light because there's going to be 11 months that pass before the decree to kill the Jews. Folks, even in this casting of lots, we see the providential hand of God. Because God is working behind the scenes to preserve his people. Well, in his fury, Haman tells a tall tale to the king about the Jews. He convinces Xerxes that in his kingdom there are a people who don't go by the laws of the Persians. And he, he says to King Xerxes, it would be better for you, it would be a lot more profitable for you in your rule if you would just get rid of this people altogether. Now notice how vague he is. He doesn't tell the king who the people are. He simply plays it up really big that their laws are so different and their customs are so different different it would be better if the Persians just wiped them out now never mind that King Xerxes hasn't had an ounce of problems out of the Jews but what Haman is doing is is building up a false scenario of fears and trying to persuade the king to see that they need to kill all the Jews It's a total disregard for human life. It's a man blinded by hatred and blinded by rage that he wants to wipe out an entire people. Now folks, there's a bit of irony in verse 12. I hope you see it. Look at at verse 12 and 13 again. Let's read both of those verses. Verses 12, verse 12 says, Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors all over the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar and to plunder their goods. Now, when does Haman have them issue this edict? On the 13th of the month, Nisan. An edict to destroy the Jews. Folks, what happened in Exodus 12 on the 14th day of Nisan it was the Passover what was the Passover the Passover was when God was going to deliver the Jews out of Egypt and here on the eve of Passover Haman is getting an edict passed to destroy the Jews 
Folks, as the story plays out, what do we see? We see that God does not forget the covenant that he makes with his people. God is a covenant-keeping God. Here, an edict might be passed to destroy the Jews, but God remembers a previous deliverance that He's done in behalf of His Jews on the same date. Isn't that wonderful? What a coincidence! But again, the irony in this, this edict being passed to destroy them on the eve of their Passover when God had delivered them. And Haman doesn't succeed. Again, it shows us that God remembers his covenant. Man might forget and man might break his part of the covenant. But we serve a God who is faithful and true. Haman thinks he's going to succeed, but he's not going to succeed. Now, additionally, Haman points out the financial motive. There in verse 9, he, he, uh, he puts all this money on the table to King Xerxes. Now, folks, I want you to keep in mind the context. Xerxes, remember, as I've told you in pre- the previous couple of weeks, what has Xerxes just led his people to do? He's been in battle against the Greeks. Was defeated miserably. So the Persian Empire is hurting financially. They have waged an expensive war and been defeated. And I'm sure their coffers have been emptied. And here's Haman promising the king, we're going to exterminate these people, and we're going to plunder all of their goods and put all the plunder into the government coffers. So he's teasing the king with the financial motive too. (laughs) It's amazing what people will do for money, right? As the Bible says, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money's not the root of all evil. Don't say that. But the love of money is the root of all evil. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, it's not. Well, amazingly, Xerxes is such a weak king... And, and history does record him as being a weak king. He acts on this. He acts on Haman's suggestion without knowing all the details, without exploring things out, without confirming whether all this is true or not, without checking any of this. He, get, he gives Haman the blank check for Haman to do what Haman wants to do. Bad leadership. Bad leadership. And the Bible says bad leadership is a curse to a people. 
Well, I want to give you some lessons tonight. Lesson number one, life can quickly change. Life can quickly change. Esther has become queen. Vashti's out. Esther's in. Mordecai has exposed a plot. Now, if anything, the Jewish people are riding, you would think they would be riding the crest of the wave at this point. But because Haman has suddenly come to power, the Jews are in danger. Folks, don't think for a moment that because life is cruising along today, that tomorrow is all set. You and I don't know what a day might bring forth. Life can take sudden turns for the good or the bad, right? Life is very fragile. We live in a fallen world, and life can have a lot of unexpected tragedies to happen without a moment's notice. Now, what should that say to you and me? Should we trust in anything in the world? Absolutely not. Whatever you and I put our trust in in the world, it it can be yanked out from under us. But the Bible says God is a refuge, God is a tower of strength, and He is a present help in time of trouble. And the psalmist over and over again calls God a rock, a rock and a refuge. If you're placing your faith in your circumstances or your good health or you're trusting in people or whatever, guess what? You're heading for disappointment. But if your trust is in God, you're in good shape. You're in good hands. But life's fragile, and things can change quickly. Tonight, do you know where your trust is? Is your trust in God? Second thing I want you to see, pride brings a sinful expectation that others are supposed to serve you. Haman has grown accustomed to his title. He's come to expect that others are going to bow down to him. That's what pride does. Human pride puts us at center stage. We start thinking, here's what people ought to be doing for us. That's what pride does. Pride blinds us. And it causes us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. A third truth. Anger blinds people to common sense. Anger blinds people to common sense. People often lose all sense of reason when they become angry over a situation. Haman is blinded by his anger. A fourth lesson. When leadership is weak and anyone can influence a leader at a moment's notice and without a just cause, then people are bound to suffer. 
People are bound to suffer when leadership is weak. And then a last lesson that God's people need to, need to remember is we need to remember that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. In the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, if you want to write down Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, the Bible says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In the book of Esther, it is a lot more that is going on than just men being pitted against men. It's spiritual warfare. Again, it's Satan out to destroy God's people. Spiritual warfare. And folks, the same spiritual warfare that we read about in the book of Esther, guess what? Believers go through spiritual warfare today too. Don't kid yourself. There are spiritual forces, unseen forces at work in this universe. The Bible tells us that in plain black and white. We have an enemy. And there is one answer for the people of God, and that is to be strong in the Lord and put on the armor that He gives us. And this spiritual warfare that we're engaged in also shows us how much we need to keep our eyes on our commanding officer, the Lord Jesus. We don't ever need to take our eyes off of him. 